so in june canada canada's canada's from madison wisconsin in the united states of global hegemony it's didactic syncast with your host eric p of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scaff in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Today is Saturday, the 11th of October, 2014. We're back, baby! It's been like 16 years since the last episode, and they said it would never happen, but now it's happening. On this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my views on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up! Up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere. But if I now do me a favor, favor. favor. let me in here. Then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the base with a taste of light. It's the school year. We're underway. It's been like. I guess it's been like a month since school started, and as you can tell, I've been crazy busy, and I haven't done. So here's. Okay, let, just hold on, everybody. Here's the way this works. During the school day, those of you, who, I don't know if any former students are listening to this, but if you have ever been a student of mine, you know that my class is pretty intense. I like to start when the bell rings. It's like, come on, let's get started and let's make the most of our time together. And I, I bring the energy because I think that's a way to reach young people and let them know, like, this is serious. This is important stuff, you know. So I use up a lot of energy. And the problem is, of course, is that after school, I'm like a, a lump of nothing because all my energy has been expended and so this year I've tried to kind of tone it down a little bit and use a little less energy in the classroom so that I can have more energy uh, during my leisure time and on the weekend and stuff but obviously that's hard to do especially because I've got certain habits of doing stuff in the classroom and then on the weekend I'm like totally drained and it's like uh, I don't have any energy to do anything I just want to sit around and play video games and because Sunday is my day for grading all those papers that have been building up I feel like Saturday is my day to like take as my own and I don't want to give anything to anyone on Saturday ah. so Saturday is the only day that's both free and when I might have some energy that hasn't been used up in the school day. So that's the day I would do a sing cast, but then it's like, oh, I'm so tired. So it's a it's a horrible conundrum, as you can see. It just keeps spinning around and around. But today I said, you know what? I'm breaking the cycle. So let's see if I can do a good show today. I hope so. Inshallah, it'll be awesome. Um... Big news! I got invited to the Wisconsin Writers Institute to present stuff. Yay! Uh, here, wait. I thought I had the Final Fantasy sound. Uh, I guess I don't have that on here. Oh, well. <laughs> yes, thank you, Nelson. So, anyway, this, so there's this, uh, the UW, University of Wisconsin in, in Madison does this Writers Institute every year, and they invite professional writers from all over the world to present workshops and help people get better at writing. And I took a class with the organizer of that workshop, or the Writers Institute at the beginning of the summer, and she's a really awesome lady named Lori Shear. She's a really good writer and teacher, and uh, so she said at one point, you know, hey, would you like to present something? And she she really likes my writing, and so she invited me, and it's a big honor, and I'm really happy about it, and I'm going to be presenting three workshops, I think. Uh, there was some question about a couple of them, but uh, the one I'm most interested in to present is called Between Pollyanna and Pessimism, because... 
I, I feel like we're in a state where the world cultural perspective is leaning pretty heavily toward a very pessimistic worldview and and game of thrones is part of this and i won't bore you with the details but uh i want to try to encourage people you know because that's not realistic to only show negative stories and it kind of ties into the last of us and and i'm not saying you can't have negative stories at all but you know the wire i think does a really good job of showing you know stories where people turn to their darkest moments and they embrace their wickedness and they they just don't give a what and then and and stories where people do help each other and they sacrifice and they overcome suffering and they get in touch with their better natures and stuff like that so you know and that's reality we we have both right sometimes people succumb to despair and nihilism and whatnot and sometimes people overcome those things and if you're going to be realistic in your storytelling you can't just tell one or the other and those of you who read this ain't what you rung for my awesome collection of short stories on sale now you know that i tend to tell stories that have happy endings okay because because a lot of the stories in that book at least i want to be affirming and and you know encouraging i, I think there is a responsibility that writers have to show people the possibility for hope now that doesn't mean you always have again you don't have to tell happy stories all the time and some of the best stories ever written have been you know, unhappy, have, have, have unhappy endings. So, you know, Hamlet and the bluest eye and, uh, no country for old man. And there will be blood. Like these are negative stories. They have some really dark stuff in them, but I think along the way, they also reveal some important, st- or they remind us about important things about who we are as human beings. And, uh, you know, the dangers of, of taking the wrong path and stuff like that. And I don't know, I think things like game of Thrones and, and, uh, the last of us sort of, just say like, oh, humans kind of suck, man. And I don't, I don't, I don't buy into that. So anyway, I'm very excited to be presenting at the Wisconsin Writers Institute. And if you're in Wisconsin, uh, in, I think it's April of 2015, come on by and see my presentation. This episode's action alert is justice for Munir. I went looking on the, uh, Amnesty, uh, international website and they had these urgent actions and one of them is about Munir. And I was like, yes, uh, Munir was this really cool Indonesian human rights activist and anti-corruption activist. And he was assassinated in 2004 while he was traveling to Utrecht university to pursue a master's degree in international law and human rights. And it's totally messed up because it was almost certainly the, uh, the state intelligence agency of Indonesia and, and the government has never done anything and uh, it's, it's really messed up. So we're trying to pressure the Indonesian government to do something to bring justice for Munir. He was a really cool dude, and his assassination is totally messed up. All right, let's talk about some other current events now. There's no good on Salvador. Have you heard of Malala Yousafzai's teenage girl got shot by the Taliban in Pakistan because she was speaking out for the rights of girls to go to school. And she was like, it's going to take more than a bullet to kill me, yo. And so she got up off the ground after getting shot. And she was like, no, sucks to be you. And she went back to school the next day. Okay, it wasn't quite that extreme uh, a recuperation process, but she did survive the shooting and uh, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. And it's so awesome because she's a beautiful example of hope and encouraging and uh, yeah. Oh my God, no, she did not. Oh God, I'm looking for, okay, so here's the, hold on. Everybody just calm down. The Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to 
um, Malala Yousafzai and an Indian child's rights campaigner named Kailash Satyarthi. So I went looking for that guy's name because I always forget it. And I find in the news, the Telegraph has this article that says Naomi Campbell congratulated malaria for winning the 2014 Nobel Peace Prize. And she did it twice, once on Twitter and then on Instagram. What the heck is wrong with you? Congratulations, malaria. Now, okay, look. Here's, look, people. This is why you don't trust the robots. Because this wasn't like she didn't know how to spell Malala's name and she was just like, oh, uh, I think that's how you spell it. No, this was probably her typing stuff in and she spell-checked, she didn't spell-check before she clicked submit. Because the robot goes, you probably mean this word. And the robot doesn't know what the context is of what you're saying. So you look like an idiot if you don't spell check. Come on! This is what I'm always telling my students. This is a good example of why you don't trust the robots. And I'm going to use this as a thing that shows people why you got to not trust the robots. Anyway, um, so Malala Yousafzai won the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's really awesome. Not only because she's just amazing and really cool, and I've been talking about it for a long time. I've been giving Malala props before it was cool. Anyway, uh... What was I going to say? Oh, yeah. So, but the other cool thing is that uh, she's from Pakistan. The other dude's from India. And she's a Muslim and he's a Hindu. So it's this really cool thing where they're trying to, you know, highlight the possibility for people to come together for peace and hope and a better tomorrow and all that stuff. So hooray for Malala. And I actually have a, a cool hip-hop song at the end of the show uh, called I Am Malala uh, that was made by this uh, girls of the world. I, and, uh, you know, so whatever. Uh, that'll be cool coming up later. Hong Kong, whoa, uh, Hong Kong's been exploding recently and they've been protesting for democracy because traditionally what Hong Kong, or what China has done, okay, so for those who don't know, uh, Hong Kong was under the control of the British crown until like 1997 or so and then there was this transitional phase and now Hong Kong is controlled once again by China and uh, if you don't know geography, Hong Kong's right off the coast of China, there, the China mainland. So, what China has done is they've let people choose their leader of Hong Kong, but it's come from this tiny little group that China selects, that Beijing selects, right? The Communist Party chooses three people and then says to the people of Hong Kong, okay, you can choose your leader from among this group of three. And that's ridiculous. That's not democracy. So the people of Hong Kong are like, we want our protest. We want real democracy. And it's interesting to see Beijing's reaction because, of course, in 1989, they reacted with horrible force and brutality in Tiananmen Square, and they're not doing that in Hong Kong so far. They have been using some tear gas, and they hired these thugs to go around and start beating up protesters, but it hasn't been nearly the kind of you know violent reaction that we might expect in China if it took place in Beijing or Shenzhen or somewhere like that. So it's this interesting sort of collision course because the... the People of Hong Kong, from what I can tell, you know, they, they got a taste of some sort of participatory uh, patterns when they were part of the, the sort of British protectorate. And now they're like, oh, no, we're not going to accept this Chinese facade of democracy. But the Chinese government can't respond the way it would like to with the billy clubs and the tanks and the crackdown and the violence and the killing and stuff. Now, unfortunately, some people seem to suggest that 
the, the, the wealthy people in Hong Kong are the ones who are going to resolve this by either just saying, okay, we'll go along with what Beijing wants, or we're going to make some tiny modification that placates the protesters. But I have hope that the people protesting will hang on and keep protesting, and good luck to everybody. There was this really cool thing in uh, New York Magazine that had uh, photographs, what's happening in Hong Kong, and they're, you know, they're, they're inspired by Occupy, the Occupy movement in the United States and elsewhere. And, um, yeah, so it's called, like, Occupy Central in Hong Kong. And it's, like, the full name is, like, Occupy Central with Peace and Love. And it's cool because they're, they're trying to make it clear that they're doing the whole, you know, nonviolence thing. And um, they've actually been drawing inspiration also from Ferguson, where the protests against the police killing of Michael Brown have been taking place. And they've got, you know, pictures of themselves with their hands in the air, and it's all, you know... Uh, hands up and somebody uh, tweeted uh, will you please show this to Mike Brown's parents and let them know that he changed the world uh, pictures of them holding you know, hands up and it's just been really cool to see the cross pollination of people halfway across the world saying you know look we're inspired by you and you're inspired by us and all the rest of it um, in the Middle East things have been not good as you probably know uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict flared up in the summer and it was just a freaking mess, and the UN had a report that said that 80% of the Palestinians that were killed in the Israeli offensive were civilians. Um, this is from the Telegraph. Uh, let's see, when did this get posted? This is a while ago, because the fighting seems to have died down. Um, let's see, Telegraph, uh, 14th of July of this year. Okay, so a uh, little old, but probably still true. Four out of every five Palestinians killed during Israelis' ongoing military offensive in Gaza have been civilians, including dozens of women and children, the United Nations said on Monday. Israel says it is responding to missile attacks launched by Hamas and other groups that it accuses of firing indiscriminately at its civilian population. No Israelis have been killed so far by Hamas's rocket attacks, although nearly a thousand have been launched in the past week, according to the Israeli military. So... The, the, the missile defense shield that everybody's always been making fun of because we had no idea how it worked and they never released any specifics, I don't know. Apparently that seems to be working in Israel now because if Hamas is launching a thousand rockets, a thousand rocket attacks, or I guess, maybe, I don't know, uh, but none of them have killed any Israelis, that indicates that their missile defense has really been working well. Um, which, I mean, the whole thing's really complicated and I don't wish to oversimplify, but... You know, what is Hamas angry about? Hamas is angry about the fact that Israel keeps building settlements, an area that it's supposed to be leaving, and the apartheid wall, and the horrible treatment, and the 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 the, the, um, the surrounding of Gaza, and the uh, blockade, that's what it's called, a blockade, uh, not letting things into Gaza, and people are calling it the world's largest open-air prison, and... You know, Palestinian men and boys are constantly rounded up and held for interrogation and all sorts of stuff. So it's really messed up. I believe Israel needs to do, you know, take some important steps to stop encroaching into, you know, stop with the settlements and stop with the, you know, use of random arrests and all that stuff. Now, that's not to say Hamas isn't doing horrible things. I don't wish to paint this as a black and white issue. But I think that the United States could do well to stop sending $3 billion of military aid to Israel every year while it goes, oh, we condemn the uh, killing of civilians. Well, if you really condemn it, stop sending them all that money and weapons. Um, yeah, and then Ebola happened. Well, it's been happening, and the United States didn't really get worried about Ebola until it came to the United States. And there was this dude, Michael Duncan, who was helping his pregnant landlord or something, and and 
he ended up contracting Ebola, and then he came back to the United States, and he died from Ebola. And it was, it was heartbreaking because his wife apparently wasn't able to see him before he died because she was in this quarantine area. And I, I, that's really messed up. And it's, you know, it's a really sad thing that this guy was trying to help someone in Liberia, and then he contracted it, and he came back here. And then everybody's like, oh, what a scumbag. Why did he come back? Yeah. We should have a travel ban on people from Liberia. And I understand that Ebola is scary, and I understand why people get especially scared when it comes to the United States. Because then people start to think, well, this might affect my brother, you know, or my sister might get infected, my husband or my wife might get uh, hurt with this virus. This this virus might, you know, in, in, infect and kill someone that I care about, some member of my family. And that makes sense to me. However, we ought to recognize that some people have been saying for many, many, many months, hey, the people in Africa who are being infected and dying, they are our brothers and sisters as well. Those are members of our human family too. And we, we can't just turn a blind eye to it and say, oh, it's, it's happening far away, so I don't care. Because that's kind of the attitude a lot of Americans and Europeans have toward the rest of the world, but especially Americans. This idea that like, oh, it's happening over there. And, you know, I'm just worried about my own personal family. And that's a horrible way to think. We are one human family and the response has been pathetic. And uh, yeah, it's really a shame that we've waited so long to send help to Liberia and other infected, you know, affected countries. Especially because if we had acted earlier, it would have been much cheaper. We would have saved a lot of people's lives. We could have contained the outbreak much more effectively. Now we're scrambling to contain it in this late, late stage, and it's going to be a much more difficult process. It's the same thing like in the United States healthcare system as a whole. We, because we don't provide preventative health care, uh, this dude in some Michael Moore movie at one point said, or maybe it was Supersize Me, it was like, there was this gym teacher, and he said, we don't offer health care in this country. We offer sick care, right? We don't, we don't help people get better, or we don't help people stay healthy. We help them once they've gotten ill. And, you know, if we did more preventative health care in this country, if we allowed people to do more interactive visiting with their doctors and just, you know, universal health care system just in general, then we would save money in the long run because we wouldn't have to treat so much stuff later down the road. Come on, people. So the Independent had an article uh, headlined, Ebola Outbreak, Why Has Big Pharma Failed Deadly Viruses' Victims? And so an excerpt from that article, West Africa's Ebola outbreak, which has now claimed well over 2,000 lives, could have been nipped in the bud if a vaccine had been developed and stockpiled sooner, a feat that would likely have been doable, said Professor Adrian Hill of Oxford University. A team led by Professor Hill is to begin trials of an experimental Ebola vaccine fast-tracked into development in a desperate bid to slow the spread of the virus in Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. If it passes safely in effectiveness trials, 10,000 doses of the vaccine, co-developed by the Britain's GSK, and America's National Institutes of Health could be used to protect health workers in West Africa by December. In terms of, well, let me do this other story about the Middle East and then we'll come back up to this thing up above. Remind me to go back up, people. The Intercept is this news site that was started by Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill, who are two really awesome independent journalists, and they investigate a lot of stuff. Glenn Greenwald broke the... Uh, story uh, he was the one who interviewed um edward snowden and he's done a, he's just been a great reporter for many many years anyway so they started this website called the intercept and i think it's generally a good website it's worth checking out they have a lot of good stories but i also think that they have a very dismissive view of everything the government says and as i've said before i think skepticism is healthy but it seems as though they're unabashedly and completely and infinitely cynical so that 
for instance, when ISIS was beheading journalists, The Intercept had these articles about how, well, every president always wants to bomb Iraq. And, and don't get me wrong, that's true, but the problem is that ISIS is beheading journalists, and that's really messed up. And I don't share the attitude that some people seem to have of, well, ISIS sucks, but, I mean, you know, they're overwhelming the, you know, they're overblowing the threat. And it's almost as though The Intercept is saying, and they're not explicitly saying this, but it sort of feels like they're sort of saying, well, we don't need to do anything because it's, you know, everyone's exaggerating that threat. Now, on the other hand, I don't buy the attitude that some people have that, well, we have to do something, so let's bomb Syria with flying robots. No, that's not, you know, those two extremes are ludicrous. So I, I think I do agree with people who say we need to do things as a world community to stop ISIS. Um, but the plans that the Obama administration came up with are a hot mess, and that's what the Intercept headline was. News organizations finally realize Obama's war plan is a hot mess. Uh, so here's a quick excerpt from that. <clears throat> Mark Mazzetti, Eric Schmidt, and Mark Landler, with contributions from Matt Abzudu, start by pointing out the essential but often overlooked fact that American intelligence agencies have concluded that the Islamic State poses no immediate threat to the United States. So that's a good point that, you know, we, we have this tendency to make it seem as though Oh, these people are right on our doorstep. They're about to kill us any minute now. And the news reports always say things like, well, they want to they wanna make a toothpaste bomb so they could blow up American Airlines flights and, and we won't be able to detect it. Well, they may want to do that, but do they have any ability to do that? Are they close to being you know, successful with such a plot? Well, no, but that's not the point. The wording is terrifying and makes us go, oh, well, we need to do whatever the president says because we're in mortal danger. But we're not in mortal danger from ISIS. Now, again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't care about what ISIS is doing. And, you know, part of having a world consciousness is recognizing that, you know, if some people aren't free, then no one's free, right? Uh, and as The Daily Show pointed out, if we were really concerned about things that affect Americans and pose a real threat to the lives of Americans, we would do something about heart disease, we would do something about uh, gun violence, we would do something about poverty, but we don't do anything about any of those things. Um, and, you know, a cynical person might say it's because they don't serve interest of government power expansion. Anyway, uh, so here's this, uh, continuing the Intercept article, uh, they're reviewing this article from some other news source. And then with the cover of, quote, some officials and terrorism experts, end quote, they share a devastating analysis of all the coverage that has come before. And this is a quote from the article they're citing. Some officials and terrorism experts believe that the actual danger posed by ISIS has been distorted in hours of television punditry and alarmist statements by politicians politicians, and that there has been little substantive public debate about the unintended consequences of expanding American military action in the Middle East. And that brings us to a very important point. Because, the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath says for doctors, first, do no harm. Whatever a patient is dealing with or, or whatever is affecting an individual, don't make it worse. And the question I have for people insisting that we drop bombs from flying robots on Syria is, is it possible that this is going to make things worse? And, and the answer is, unfortunately, yes. Because the, the, the bombing of terrorists from the sky gives them more fodder to recruit people. And who are they recruiting? They're recruiting young men who are 
unemployed and don't have hope for a better future and feel like they're under attack from various directions and the way to sort of you know stand up for themselves is to join this force that has power that is offering them a living well until you have to blow yourself up i mean you know it's an absurd living no doubt and mixes with this fanatical religious fundamentalism and you know again don't get it don't get it twisted i'm not excusing isis or anything i'm saying I really want to see ISIS stopped, and if we want to see ISIS stopped, we have to recognize that the, the people join ISIS for the same reason they joined Al-Qaeda, and the same reason they join uh, the, the, the Khorasan group, which is another group of people you know, trying to kill Americans, is, is, is that they feel like they have to pick a side between American imperialism and you know, Islamic fundamentalist reaction to that. And I think that the more we bomb people around the world, the more they feel like, hey, look, they're coming to get us. We have to be ready to fight back. And we say, oh, these people are trying to kill us. We have to be ready to fight back. Or except we fight them over there so they don't get over here. But it doesn't work. And so we, we went after Al-Qaeda to try to kill them and bomb everybody who was going against us. And meanwhile, the, the bombing made people so angry that they, you know, wanted to fight back. Now, that is an oversimplification of itself because, of course, ISIS represents also this very ancient Sunni-Shia split. And so ISIS is giving voice to Sunni Muslims who feel like they've been oppressed by the Shia. And, and you know, in Syria, it's all complicated by the fact that Bashar al-Assad is a member of the... Um, Alawite group, and, and I mean, there's just so, I mean, and the Kurds are in this mix, and, and it's just all a big mess. And of course, the main point is, we can't fix that. And we certainly aren't going to fix this mess by coming in with bombs and bombing one particular group while teaming up with people of other groups and similar groups. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's this, you know, I have a sledgehammer and I'm going to tap this nail in type approach. And all it's doing, look, it, even if we were to destroy ISIS, but we were to kill everybody who was involved in ISIS, that still wouldn't solve the problem because it, ISIS is only a symptom of a much larger issue beneath the surface. And the real problem that it poses for Americans who may care deeply about preserving the lives of, you know, the, the um, I don't remember the name of the group of people who were in danger of being wiped out on the side of the mountain. We had to step in and protect them. That's fine. And yes, we should do things. But here's the thing. We don't build actual coalitions. We don't go to parts of the world and say, okay, let's have people involved in this conflict. All sorts of people, political leaders, military leaders, ordinary citizens, you know, health leaders, uh, education leaders, women, men. Let's get everyone involved and say, okay, look, let's all try to figure out a way to solve this problem. That would be real coalition building. We don't do that. We say, we're about to start bombing people. Who's with us? And... Of course, leaders in the region are then caught in a very difficult bind because it's like they have to join a gang. And they're going to ask themselves, okay, which gang am I going to join and how actively am I going to participate in this gang warfare? Am I going to align myself or at least turn a blind eye to this horrible group of murderers who are running rampant and chopping heads off and doing nasty, horrible things to women? and men, and children, and, you know, everybody? Or am I going to align myself with this, you know, hegemonic force of robot bombing in the, you know, in the guise of U.S. power? Because choosing either of those will bring horrible negative consequences for them. So even the best-minded, most enlightened leader of any state in the Middle East is facing a really difficult choice.
But of course, we know that many of the leaders in that part of the world are not enlightened and, you know, self-sacrificing and interested in finding the best human rights recourse. They're all pulling for their own greedy, selfish interests. So you look at Saudi Arabia, for instance, well, it's all about the royal lineage and the power of the House of Saud. So we, we end up with this big cluster bomb of, of complications reduced to this very simplistic view of, you know, well, we have to stop, we have to do something, so let's bomb ISIS with these flying robots, and what a shame that more countries in the region aren't doing more. What we need is, you know, real regional leadership from people in that region saying, here's what we want to see done, the world community needs to come together as a whole and say, here's what we would support, and come together and, and find more inclusive ways of really building a coalition of actual people involved. Well, again, that's not to say ISIS isn't horrible and atrocious, because we had this news article from uh, MSN, uh, which and it was reported in lots of other places. Iraqi woman activist killed by Islamic State. <clears throat> Gunman with the group's newly declared police force seized Samira Salih al-Nuami last week in a northern district of the Mosul, of Mosul while she was uh, at home with her husband and three children, two people with direct knowledge of the incident, told the Associated Press on Thursday, and this was a couple weeks ago. Al-Nuaimi was taken to a secret location. After about five days, the family was called by the morgue to retrieve her corpse, which bore signs of torture, two people said, speaking on condition of anonymity because of fears for their safety. According to the United Nations Assistance Mission in Iraq, her, her arrest was allegedly connected to Facebook messages she posted that were critical of the militants' destruction of religious sites in Mosul. A statement by the UN on Thursday added that Al-Nuaimi was t tried in a so-called Sharia court for apostasy, after which she was tortured for five days before the militants sentenced her to public execution. Her Facebook page seems to have been removed since her death. Clearly very twisted and horrible and disgusting, and again, shows the need for us to do things, again, as a world community, not as Americans coming in and saying, here's what has to happen, but rather a long a long-range vision of how do we fight Islamic extremism. And this connects, by the way, to Malala Yousafzai's work in Pakistan, because she has said over and over again, the, the way to fight terrorism is with education. And, and, you know, yeah, I can't say anything better than that. Back in the United States, uh, Arizona inmate dies two hours after execution began. Ugh, God, this is from the Seattle Times, and this is from, I think, like early September. Um, no, July 23rd. Man, how horrible am I at estimating dates? A condemned murderer took nearly two hours to die and gasped for about 90 minutes during an execution in Arizona that quickly rekindled the national debate on capital punishment in the United States. Uh Arizona Attorney General Tom Horn's office said Joseph Rudolph Wood was pronounced dead at 3.49 p.m., one hour and 57 minutes after the execution started. Wood's lawyers had filed emergency appeals with federal and state courts uh, while the execution was underway, demanding that it be stopped. The appeal said that Wood was, quote, gasping and snorting for more than an hour. And uh, I don't remember why this person was being sentenced to death. Probably did horrible stuff, but, you know, the idea that we're torturing people to death is just atrocious. And the reason we're doing it is because we don't have um, reliable drugs to use for executions. Now, they were never great, but recently companies that made drugs to be used for execution said, we don't want our drugs being used for that. And so the states that do execution through lethal injection have been scrambling to find 
drugs to use and they have all these untested things and they don't really know what they do and what they end up doing is torturing people for an hour or two hours uh, while they're slowly dying in horrible pain and that just sucks. We should not be doing that. All right, let me scroll back up. What was that story I skipped over earlier? Um... Oh, yeah, Wall Street. Okay, yeah, here we go. This is good. This is really should be in the economics, but whatever. Um, so there's this thing called inversion that companies are doing where uh, they'll... Okay, so Burger King, for instance, is a U.S. company, right? They make hamburgers and stuff. Uh, I, and by the way, as a short aside, Richard Wolf does this great web uh, podcast called Economic Update, and you should totally listen to it. It's really good economic analysis. He is a socialist through and through, but he has this really engaging way of describing things and he always starts out with like the most basic descriptions in the world so it doesn't matter what he's describing or how unlikely it is that anybody has never heard of these things he'll always describe them like in the most basic way so for instance when he's talking he recently did a show where he was talking about burger king and he goes he has this great way of talking i'd like to begin this week with Burger King, it's a chain of fast food restaurants that serves burgers and french fries and Coca-Cola soda products. And it, it just, it's very cute the way he always starts from just complete square one. Like, if you don't know what Burger King is, I will tell you. Okay, so anyway, Burger King's trying to do this thing called inversion, where they set up a subsidiary in some other country, like Canada, and then, because the tax policy is more appealing to them, they'll move their headquarters from where it really is to the other country, Canada or, you know, Cayman Islands or wherever it is. And so they're sort of inverting the supposed structure of the company when in reality, of course, the new headquarters, quote unquote, has like 20 people in it and they're, you know, U.S. subsidiary. Now the U.S. headquarters is a subsidiary of the Canadian company. Uh, Suddenly that, you know, but that place still has 2,000 people working in the HQ. And it's a lot like The Simpsons where uh, Mr. Burns gives control of the power plant over to some canary uh, but then Homer Simpson's second in line, so he kills the canary, and then he becomes the head of the power plant. Everything's like the Simpsons, you know. So anyway, uh, Obama administration wanted to stop companies from leaving the United States. So this inversion deal was pending, and Wall Street reacted like crazy. And the reaction from Wall Street was very telling, because people all said, oh, you know, this won't stop anything, and this won't slow down you know, the movement. So Forbes had this article that said, Wall Street reacts to Obama administration's move to stop companies from leaving America. Shares of companies with so-called inversion deals pending fell on Tuesday morning, suggesting that the Treasury Department's rules to curb inversion deals were stronger than expected since Treasury Secretary Jacob Liu had telegraphed that such an effort was coming because Congress had failed to pass anti-inversion legislation. The impact was most widely felt in the pharmaceutical sector, where inversion deals have been most popular this year. Many U.S.-based pharmaceutical companies have built large cash piles in their foreign subsidiaries and are using inversion deals to tap into them while limiting their U.S. tax rates by, and here's the beautiful word of the day, redomiciling in overseas jurisdictions like Ireland. Now, we all hate Ireland. Just kidding! Ah, you get it? It's a joke. It's funny. It's a joke. Joke. You get it? It's a joke. Yeah. But that word redomiciling, I just love that. That's like the, 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 um, oh, what do you call it when a word's not really the word? Euphemism. Thank you brain part of my brain i had not accessed uh redomiciling i just i'm going to redomicile now you're moving just you're moving your headquarters to save taxes that's it end of discussion unbelievable uh so the fact that these companies are losing pro uh, you know share value indicates that hey that's 
it, this stuff works. It works when the government steps in and goes, no, you can't do that. Or if you do, you have to pay a large sum of money for leaving the United States, for redomiciling. Uh, so don't tell me reg legislation and regulation can't work to rein in Wall Street. Of course it can. All right, what else is in the news? Washington is renaming the street outside China's embassy in honor of Liu Xiaobo. Sweet! Speaking of awesome people from Asia winning the Nobel Peace Prize, you like how I, I connected the two there? Uh, so uh, Liu Xiaobo won the Nobel Peace Prize several years ago because he's been in prison and he's been fighting for democracy in China. He's really awesome. And I remember I, when he was announced, I printed out this like declaration he had endorsed there's some you know this group that had said hey here's some reforms we want in china and i printed out a list of the deck you know that i printed out that declaration and i put it up in my classroom and i wrote free lu xiaobo and uh we had a chinese exchange student at the time and i totally forgot and she came in the classroom that day and she's like oh lu xiaobo and i was like yeah lu xiaobo and um it's always interesting because you know, they the, the exchange students from China obviously grow up under Chinese media and government surveillance and, and propaganda and stuff. So it's always unusual having conversation with them. But anyway, China hit. Here's the news article about the Washington renaming of the street. China has reacted with fury to plans to rename the street outside its Washington embassy in honor of its most famous political dissident. Earlier this week, and again, earlier this week means probably, what, April? I think this is June of this year. Yes, June 26th. I'm topical and current. And by the way, thanks to Stulek, who wrote, uh, he posted a, a thing on Twitter that was like, he quoted the... Um, podcast feed of this podcast that says it says apparently uh i haven't changed it but it's like a weekly uh review of news and opinion and events happening in the world and he was like weekly huh how long has that been up uh since you updated it and of course it's been way too long so whatever anyway uh right earlier in june a u.s congressional committee voted to change the chinese embassy's address to lu Xiaobo plaza a tribute to the literary critic and dissident who has been in prison since 2009 for organizing a subversive pro-democracy petition called charter 08 the name change was quote a way to highlight lu's unjust imprisonment said a statement posted on the website of frank wolf the republican congressman behind the initiative and that's totally awesome i love it hooray for democracy hooray for lu Xiaobo. now representative wolf would you also support the renaming of the street outside the Indonesian embassy to call it Munir Drive? I think probably not. Why? Because you have a double standard probably for human rights when it comes to our friends. And Indonesia's our friend, so you're not willing to step up in that way, so I call you a fraud, sir. Actually, he's not a fraud, but he's probably not. Whatever. Uh, thank you, Duchess. She sent me this article about fracking. Fracking news. Fracking. Um, first of all, if you haven't seen my Facebook post, there's this. Okay, Susan G. Komen is this organization in the U.S. that fights breast cancer. And their whole thing is like branding the color pink. They're going to sell pink everything. They, they start, you know, they, they've claimed the pink ribbon for fighting breast cancer. And they like sell pink guns and stuff to fight breast cancer by shooting things. And they recently started, or they started taking support from a fracking group. And as a result, they're selling like pink fracking drills. I'm not making this up. There's a picture on my Facebook feed and it's like pink fracking drills for the cure. So we're fracking to cure breast cancer. Now the irony there is that a lot of the stuff they pump into the ground and into the rivers when they frack, is carcinogenic. So they may be causing cancer 
while at the same time donating funds to promote awareness to try to help cure cancer. What the heck? Ah! However, uh, there was a federal study that found artificial quakes less shaky, federal study finds. Man-made earthquakes, a side effect of high-tech energy drilling, cause less shaking and in general are about 16 times weaker than natural earthquakes with the same magnitude, a federal study found. People feeling the ground move from induced quakes, those that are not natural but triggered by injections of wastewater deep underground, report significantly less shaking than those who experience normal earthquakes of the same magnitude, according to a study by geological survey geophysicist Susan Howe. How, how, how! Uh, distance matters in this shaking gap, however. For people within six miles of the fault, artificial and natural quakes feel pretty much the same, she said. So, what's your problem, people? Artificial earthquakes from fracking? So what? Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal had this awesome article. The headline was, A Push to Make Fracking Sound Better. Because <laughs> the word fracking, people are just like, oh, man. So the fracking industry is trying to reclaim the word. In the PR, and if you don't know what fracking is, uh, they are trying to get natural gas out of the ground. So what they do is they drill down, and then they pump in a lot of water and chemicals and crap into the ground, and then they burst it open, and, and the natural gas comes spurting out, and they get it. And they and then they dump wastewater and there's all chemicals and weird stuff. Uh, so here we go. In the PR battle over natural gas, the anti-drilling fractivists. You see what they did there? It's a joke. You get it? It's a joke. It's like a portmanteau. Anti-drilling fractivists have held the linguistic upper hand since fracking carries negative connotations and even sounds a bit obscene. And later in the article they mention, or maybe it was a different article, but it's like Battlestar Galactica also helped this along by using frac as their substitute for the F word. Uh, so that's why people have a negative association with it. But rather than avoiding the term, the Marcellus Shale Coalition, an industry group, has decided to embrace it. I wish I could find this ad because it just sounds so awesome, but I can't find it. I spent like half an hour looking for it. A new ad campaign sponsored by the coalition seeks to rebrand the term. The Pittsburgh Tribune Review reported late last month, quote, fracking is a good word, says one actor in a commercial. A girl adds, fracking rocks! Fracking rocks! <laughs> I just love that. It's totally like David Cross, like, Henderson Valley eggs! You're gonna love our eggs! It's ain't your daddy's egg! And this is like, oh, fracking for a new generation! Yeah, my, get out of here, Grandpa! This ain't your old school fracking! This is new fracking! Actually, that's not what the Marcella Shell Coalition is saying. They're not trying to say it's a new kind of fracking. They don't want people to know that it's a new kind of fracking, in fact, because fracking of various sorts has been done for a long time. And in fact, the kinds of fracking that was done 40 years ago in North Dakota is very different from the fracking of today. And it was much less environmentally destructive. It wasn't good for the environment, but it was much less destructive. So in fact, the new generation of fracking, yeah, extreme fracking, is actually a lot worse for the environment, but they don't want you to know that. Shh, it's okay. We've been fracking for years and it hasn't really destroyed everything. So sh it's cool. Fracking's cool, man. Fracking rocks. Meanwhile, in other news, U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse has claimed, quote, there are already more American jobs in the solar industry than in coal mining. A 2013 report from the U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration cited 123,227 jobs, substantially more than the Bureau of Labor Statistics said, but still less than the number of solar jobs that Whitehouse cited. Uh, Larson 
cited the Solar Foundation's, quote, National Solar Job Census 2013, which states that the solar industry employs 142,698 Americans as of November 2013. So 123,000 in coal, um, but 142,000 in solar. So we're seeing more people working in solar than we are in coal. Now, the Solar Foundation is an independent national 501c3 nonprofit, non-lobbying group, yada, yada, yada. Their data is considered the most authoritative by the Congressional Research Office. So, you know, we take it with a grain of salt. But, again, this notion that solar isn't viable, it's not going to provide enough jobs, and blah, 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 blah. It's a bunch of hooey. Don't believe the hype. Respect my ego to check knocks. Chabam! Move from the gate now. Cash moves everything around me. Green, get the money. Dollar, dollar, bill, yo. news now uh canadian supreme court rules against walmart over store closing yes so a little bit of background for those who don't know um walmart likes to figure out where people are trying to unionize and then they'll just close the whole store and fire everybody as soon as they get a whiff of unionization they'll just be like that's it we're closing the store everyone's fired get out and so the canadian supreme court has said no Canada's top court on Friday, and again, when was this? This is Wall Street Journal from 17 years ago. <laughs> that 17 years ago line never gets old. June 27th. It's like I spent all of June finding headlines and articles, and then I was just like, eh, I'm not going to do anything on this for another month, six months. So in June, Canada's top court upheld a Quebec arbitrator's ruling that Walmart Stores Incorporated broke provincial labor laws when it closed a store nearly a decade ago amid an impasse in talks with unionized workers. In a 5-2 decision, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with the arbitrator that Walmart failed to justify its decision to close its Jonquière Quebec store in 2005, shortly after the local union bargaining unit sought the help of an arbitrator in the talks. The retailer said it closed the store for business reasons. Lies! But the arbitrator said the move constituted a unilateral change in worker conditions during bargaining and therefore violated Quebec's labor laws. The Supreme Court Friday sent the case back to the arbitrator to award remedy to the close to 200 workers affected. Earlier this year, the U.S. National Labor Relations Board accused the company of unlawfully retaliating against or threatening workers who took part in protests over working conditions. Walmart has said it was, in with, it was within its rights to mete out discipline. So, again, look, this shows the failure of U.S. regulators to punish companies that retaliate against unions. There should be no retaliation. We have the right to organize unions, and anybody who does so ought to have, you know, a guarantee that their job won't be threatened. But Walmart does whatever it wants because the National Labor Relations Board doesn't have any power, and we've completely detoothed and defanged regulators in this country so that they don't, they don't have the ability to strike back when Walmart breaks the law by firing people who, for unionizing. The Guardian had an article that was headlined, Aid to Africa, Donations from the West Mask $60 Billion Looting of the Continent. Now, this is probably an opinion piece. I don't expect this is a uh, news article, but uh, it's from Mark Anderson. And, 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 well, you know, it's news, I guess. It, uh, let's see, who is Mark Anderson? Um, Mark Anderson, I guess he's a reporter. So, yeah, okay, so... But, you know, okay, who are they quoting? Right. Western countries are using aid to Africa as a smokescreen to hide the, quote, sustained looting of the continent as it loses nearly $60 billion a year through tax evasion, climate change mitigation, and the flight of profits earned by foreign multinational companies, a group of NGOs has claimed. So, 
They're referring to this uh, UK and Africa-based NGOs. Although Sub-Saharan Africa receives $134 billion each year in loans, foreign investment, and development aid, research released on Tuesday by a group of UK and Africa-based NGOs suggests that $192 billion leaves the region, leaving a $58 billion shortfall. So this is why I don't buy this. You know, we always hear like, oh, we should fix America first. Before we always go help everyone else around the world. We don't go help everyone else around the world. Our companies go and extract resources and profits and all sorts of stuff. We, we, our companies get crazy rich, and UK companies and, you know, other companies. Uh, they get crazy rich, and then the people in the region wind up with no resources and, and crumbling infrastructure and all the rest of it, and then they need aid. So then taxpayers in the United States and the United Kingdom and other European countries and other places, they'll give aid in terms of tax money. And, and so what we have is these companies are getting crazy rich, private payoff, but the public has to provide money to make that possible. So w the money that goes to Africa comes from ordinary taxpayers, and it ain't the rich people, let me tell you what. But the money that comes out of Africa goes to rich people and companies and corporations and shareholders. So it's this funneling of money through Africa, and again, more of it leaves than it goes in. So... A, Africa is hurt. B, it's money from ordinary taxpayers. And C, it's companies and rich people making all the profits. So we have this perfect storm where, you know, ordinary working people in the United States and the UK and elsewhere are right in thinking, well, all my tax dollars is going to Africa. But it is a way of making up for the fact that companies from our country are making crazy profits out of Africa. And that hurts people in Africa. And, and, and therefore, you know, it's this sick twisted joke about well yeah you are being fleeced but it's not people in africa who are benefiting from it it's the companies that are making all those billions of dollars and it's not just africa i guarantee you i don't have the facts in front of me but you know i'm sure that in south america we send aid and you know in asian countries we send aid and it's 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 just a smokescreen for the plunder that companies are doing in these parts of the world ah National Geographic had an article that was headlined, Why Tap Bottle is Better Than Bottled. Look, people, if you're buying bottled water, stop. Just don't buy bottled water. Don't do it. It's just wrong. National Geographic is explaining it here. Bottled water is a drain on the environment. The U.S. public goes through about 50 billion water bottles a year, and most of those plastic containers are not recycled, according to Elizabeth Reut's 2008 book, Bottle Mania, How Water Went on Sale and Why We Bought It. Transporting the bottles and keeping them cold also burns fossil fuels, which give off greenhouse gases, and groundwater pumping by bottled water companies draws heavily on underground aquifers and harms watersheds, according to the Sierra Club, an environmental nonprofit, and, according to some estimates, it takes up to three liters of water to produce one liter of bottled water. What are we doing? Yet, yet more than 100 billion U.S. dollars is spent every year on bottled water globally. In many cities in developing countries where there is not a safe source of tap water, bottled water becomes a somewhat trusted option. But in the U.S., where tap water is federally regulated and often screened for dangerous pollutants, the public drinks 21 gallons of bottled water per capita per year on average, according to the Columbia Water Center at Columbia University's Earth Institute in New York. The bottled water industry is so successful it has outpaced milk, coffee, and juice in terms of gallons of drinks sold, putting it behind only beer and soda. So, okay, look, yes, from a health standpoint, it's better to drink water than it is to drink soda, but... Just drink it out of the tap. Get a filter and just drink tap water. 
God, drives me crazy to see everybody buying all this bottled water, and you know, and then they just dump the bottle in a recycling bin. And there we go, perfect circle. Never mind that. Stop buying bottled water. God. In other news, Charlotte's apartments for homeless save money. This comes to us from the Charlotte Observer. Is it 323? Was this really from March? Oh my goodness. That's ridiculous. Uh, okay, so, uh, yeah, the idea of building apartments to house Charlotte's most troubled homeless men and women, including those with addictions and mental disabilities, was controversial, if not ridiculed, when first proposed by the Urban Ministry Center in 2009. But a first-year impact report scheduled to be released Monday by UNC Charlotte shows the homeless apartment complex known as Moore Place has succeeded in fulfilling its many promises to the community, particularly in saving tax dollars. Again, this is that whole preventative thing, saving money in the long run. If we had a medium-term and a long-term vision for making our communities better, we would stop fixating on, like, tiny Band-Aid solutions that ultimately end up costing us money. Come on, people, get it together. The study, conducted by the university's Department of Social Work, found that Moore Place saved $1.8 million in its first year by drastically reducing the amount of time its tenants spent in emergency rooms, 447 fewer visits, and admitted to hospitals, 372 fewer days. Statistics show tenants also stayed out of trouble more, with a 78% drop in arrests and 84% fewer days spent in jail. So look... I understand people are like, well, I work hard to pay my rent. Why should we just give homeless people free places to stay? Okay, that assumes people don't homeless people don't want to work, which is just ludicrous and stupid. But let's just say for the sake of cynicism that that is what was happening here. It's not, but let's say it is. Would you rather pay $100 a month to put a homeless person in an apartment he didn't pay for and he doesn't deserve? Or would you rather pay $200 a month to treat medical things and deal with jail time and all sorts of other things you have to do later on? Just give homeless people homes! Why is this so complicated? I hate everything. No, I don't. I don't hate everything. And finally, thank you, Duchess. Uh, investment rats. What the hell is this? I have no idea what this is. Oh, yeah, I know what this is. <laughs> this is another example of Wall Street losing its damn mind. Actually, it's not Wall Street losing its mind. It's a, it's a beautiful experiment that shows that Wall Street is nothing more than some sort of cross between a bizarre psychedelic casino run by insane people and, like, a psychedelic drug trip-fueled insanity hallucination uh, on the other. And so... <laughs> they they train rats to push buttons and they had a better outcome on the stock market than like supposed experts who knew what they were doing here's the article the rats were trained to press a red or green button to give buy or sell signals after listening to ticker tape movements represented as sounds if they called the market right after they were fed uh if they called it wrong they got a small electric shock now i don't like shocking rats but you know, whatever Male and female rats performed equally well. The second generation of rat traders <laughs> crossbred from the best performers in the first generation appeared to have even better performance. Although this is a preliminary result, according to the text, Markovici's plan, he writes, is to breed enough of them to set up a hedge fund. So there you go, people. We don't need crazy robots trading stocks for fractions of a second. We don't need uh, hedge fund managers getting paid millions of dollars for nothing. We don't need corporate executives and Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo lying to people and foreclosing on homes. All we need is a bunch of rats being fed and shocked electrically when they 
get the wrong stock. Come on, rat, get it together. Ah, I'm training the best I can. How did you learn to talk, rat? Ah, I'm training stocks. I'm training stocks. Wow, rat, you really got it all going on here, don't you? myself not to continue with that bit about the trading rat for like 20 minutes. I really wanted to. But it's time to move on to education news. I would like to thank Janine for the article about the hard part of teaching. And this is from the Huffington Post, some guy named Peter Green. And he wrote this really good piece. You should read the whole thing. I will read you an excerpt from it. The hard part of teaching is coming to grips with this. There is never enough. There is never enough time. There are never enough resources. There is never enough you. And as a high school English teacher, I can tell you this is absolutely true. This hits the nail on the head. Here we go. As a teacher, you can see what a perfect job in your classroom would look like. You know all the assignments you should be giving. You know all the feedback you should be providing your students. You know all the individual crafting that should provide for each individual's instruction. You know all the material you should be covering. You know all the ways in which when the teachable moment emerges, unannounced as always, you can greet it with a smile and drop everything to make it grow and blossom. Teaching is like painting a huge Victorian mansion, and you don't actually have enough paint. And when you get to some sections of the house, it turns out the wood is a little rotten, or not ready for the paint. And about every hour, some supervisor comes around and asks you to get down off the ladder and explain why you aren't making faster progress. And some days the weather is terrible, so it takes all your art and skill and experience to do a job where the house still ends up looking good. What are school reformy folks in this metaphor? They're the ones who show up and tell you that having a ladder is making you lazy and you should work without. They're the ones who take a cup of your paint every day to paint test strips on scrap wood just to make sure the paint is okay, but now you have less of it. They're the ones who show up after the work is done and tell passerby, see that one good-looking part? That turned out good because the painters followed my instructions. And they're most especially the ones who turn up after the job is to complete to say, hey, you missed a spot right there on that one board under the eaves. That's what teaching is. Amen. Thank you, Janine. Thank you, uh, the hard part of teaching, Peter Green. Al Jazeera had a really good article called Did Detroit School for Teen Moms Discriminate Against Them? You should totally read the whole article. I would love to read you the whole thing, but we don't have time. So instead, I will read you an excerpt. Um, it's about this institute that had... Uh, it, it was open to help struggling teen moms. And then it th the rules changed, the government changed the nature of the school, and then it just went to crap. The Catherine Ferguson Academy for Young Women sits frozen in time, rooms of cribs gathering dust. Before it shut its doors this summer, the school, founded in 1986, educated generations of Detroit's pregnant girls and teen moms, the vast majority of whom graduated and went on to college. Catherine Ferguson's reputation was so stellar, girls were known to borrow friends' babies to sneak in. Okay, so clearly the school's doing something right. But in 2011, the emergency manager for Detroit Public Schools stated slated a number of schools for closure as a cost-saving measure. Ding, 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 ding. We're going to close schools to save costs. We hear this over and over again all over the place. It's bound to work out great. 
including Catherine Ferguson. At the time, DPS defended the move, saying the school's students could enroll in the city's traditional high schools, which educated other teen moms. But facing protests and sit-ins by angry students and teachers, the district drew up a compromise. It would reopen Catherine Ferguson as a private, for-profit charter school. Ding, 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 ding. So the two elements in this equation, which we see over and over again all over the country and around the world, are, one, we got to close a bunch of schools because they're not performing well. We need to save costs. And two, we can turn it over to the free market. They'll do a good job. <clears throat> Students and teachers rejoiced that the school had been saved. School management was handed over to the charter network Blanche Kelso Bruce Academy, which runs several alternative disciplinary academies in Detroit, geared towards students who had behavioral issues in mainstream schools. We're going to open a disciplinary academy. Wouldn't you like to go to a disciplinary academy? Doesn't that sound like fun? I would love to teach at a disciplinary academy. It instituted new non-traditional curriculum focused on independent projects and work-oriented skills. According to Joyce Schoen, a D Detroit attorney who helped file the lawsuit against the school, the new setup was, quote, a disaster. I, I always want to say that like some Jewish woman from New York. It was a disaster. Quote, they ended up telling teachers not to teach. They renamed the teachers advisors, she said. The students were told to find their own externships. What the heck's an externship? I guess that's like the opposite of an internship. Who wants a high school student running around their office? And they were supposed to be doing that two days a week, and they had to have transportation to get their kids to the school for child care and then find their own transportation to the non-existent externship and back to the school to pick up their kids at the end of the school day. What a nightmare! I'm... I, oh, privatization. Doing great things all the time for everybody. We need to talk about something more happy. Let's talk about killer robots. Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Now, I don't even have the two most vivid articles that are in my mind right now about robots because one of them was about a butt robot. Apparently, Samsung. Okay, so you know, you may have heard that Apple is having complaints that their new iPhone is being crushed by people's butts. And so there's all this these pictures on the Internet of like, my, uh, my iPhone got damaged by my butt. Now, I don't know why you would keep a phone in your back pocket. That just seems like a really bad idea. Of course you're going to bend it, but whatever. So Samsung apparently, or some company, is using these butt robots. To, I'm not making this up. I will put a link in the show notes. These butt robots that are like testing their phones to make sure they don't bend or something. I just, what? And then I saw an article that I forgot to put in the notes about, but I will. Uh, robot cheerleaders. And there are these robots. They're like a foot and a half tall or something. It's really tiny. And I don't know how that's going to replace cheerleaders, but I guess it's just sort of showing it can be done. And they like move around the way cheerleaders would, except they're perfectly synchronized. And they kind of look like people, but they're not at all because they're robots and they're very simple robots. But they move around on these like spheres like they have the human torso part up top, and then the spheres roll around underneath. It's really weird, and I don't understand why people think that's going to replace cheerleaders, but maybe someday. They won't try to get better than a minimum wage like those Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Lazy. If you don't know, Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders were protesting recently because they wanted to get paid more. They basically get paid minimum wage, apparently, and it's just horrible, and it's all sort of sexism that goes into that and whatever. Um... Congressman replaced with robot body double, opponent claims. 
<laughs> this is from the Independent. A U.S. congressman was replaced by a robot body double after he was secretly executed, and the results of a recent vote should be thrown out, his opponent has claimed. Timothy Ray Murray says on his website that incumbent Oklahoman congressman Frank Lucas is dead and has been replaced by a body double. He says that a similar tactic was used in Kentucky in 2012. Uh, Murray says that it is, quote, widely known that his successful opponent is no longer alive and has been replaced by a lookalike. His opponent was killed in Ukraine three years ago, Murray alleges. Representative Frank Lucas and a few other Oklahoma and other states' congressional members were depicted as being executed by the World Court on or about January 11, 2011 in southern Ukraine, he writes. We know that it is possible to use lookalike artificial or man-made replacements. However, Representative Lucas was not eligible to serve as a congressional member after that time. Murray appears to claim that the killing has been covered up because the U.S. Defense Department is part of the plot and is using his DNA. <laughs> the aspiring congressman has committed not to use such a body double at any time. Quote, I will never use artificial intelligence lookalike to voice what the representative's office is doing, nor own a robot lookalike, Murray says on his website. I think we should demand that every elected official make this claim. Why won't you swear that you're not a robot, Mr. Senator? What are you hiding? <laughs> Lucas has rejected the claims. Speaking to a local TV news station, he said that he was not a robot and has never been to the Ukraine. Well, isn't that exactly what a robot double would say? We demand a Voight camp test now. And those people who have seen Blade Runner and or read the Philip K. Dick story, the, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, they are rolling around on the floor, clutching their gut with helpless laughter right now because of the Voight camp joke I just made. Jibo could be the robot assistant you fall in love with. I'm supposed to play you a video at 1 minute and 32 seconds, apparently, because there's something here that will just light up your life. Uh, where's the video? Oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, so let me cue it up to 1 minute and 32 seconds. 1 minute and 32 seconds. Here we go. All right, here we go. You ready? Jibo! I want turkey pizza. <laughs> and he's a platform, so his skills keep expanding. He'll be able to connect to your home. Now, here's a guy coming home, and the as soon as he steps in the door, the robot, which looks like like a little ice cream cone upside down on the table, so there's this cone, and then it's got this like semi sphere on top with a little screen on it, and like it, it'll flash things or it'll glow with this little blue light. Uh, so that's what's talking to this guy here. Welcome home, Eric. Eric. It's me! I got a robot double! I'm oh, sorry. Welcome home, Eric, the robot said. Hey, buddy. Can you order some takeout for me? Sure thing. Chinese, as usual? You know me so well. And even be a great wingman. You have I'm gonna cry myself to sleep now, Jibo. Could you put on some reruns of 30 Rock? Okay. Would you like me to help you find some- No! People suck. You're my only friend, Jibo. I'm gonna just lie here on the couch. I'm so alone. You have me, Eric. Don't worry. Thanks, Chibo. You're the only one who really understands me. Should I queue up your donkey pornography? Yes, as usual. A voice message from Ashley. Uh-oh, I was wrong. Chibo is helping him get some. Want to hear it? Absolutely. Hey, call me when you're home. That's the most boring voice message ever. That person has no interest in talking to you. Call me when you're home. That's it? Really? Call me when you're home. Hey, call me when you're home. Oh, my goodness. She hates you, dude. She does, she's not interested. Let it go. Make that takeoff for two, Jibo. Make that takeoff for two, Jibo! 
We've dreamt of it for years, and They're showing pictures of, like, Short Circuit and R2-D2. Now he's finally here. No, he's not here. And Wally. Wally is trying to warn us about the dangers of trusting our lives to robots! Didn't you see the movie? And he's not just an aluminum shell. Nor is he just a three-axis motor system. He is a three-axis motor system, but he's not just a three-axis motor system. Come on, be fair. He's not even just a connected device. He's one of the family. Now they show the underpants being flung on top of Jibo. So obviously Eric is now getting some, and they're so careless that they're flinging their dirty underpants on this robot. How insensitive can you be? Oh, wait. Wait a minute, apparently that was like a sock and it's a little girl. What the hell is going on with this robot? And now his little blue light turned into a red heart. And he's like, good night, little girl. Jibo. This little bot of mine. This little bot of mine. Oh my goodness. What if technology actually treated you like a human being? What if technology helps you to feel closer to the ones you love? Isn't that always the promise? This will help you feel closer to the ones you love. No, it won't. Look, cell phones aren't bringing us closer. They're driving us apart. You don't believe me? Come to my classroom anytime you want. You will see three students using their cell phones instead of talking to the people near them, instead of listening to me, instead of reading their writing, or instead of doing their writing. Why? Because they're convinced that their real friends live in their cell phones. And I've tried getting them to put the cell phones away, and it becomes a choice of, am I going to kick the student out of the room, or am I going to let them use their cell phone? That really is the only choice I have. They, I cannot take their phones. They will not give their phones to me. It just doesn't happen. And so, you know, I can kick them out, but I never want to kick students out of my room, or I can let them continue. So what's going to happen when students start bringing Jibo in? And they're like, Jibo, hey, send this email to Ashley. Hey, call me when you're home. Uh, hey, are you talking to Jibo? No, Jibo, keep writing. I bet Jibo would be a better student than the student will. Gah! All right, so enough with Jibo. Jibo was created by Cynthia Briezel, an MIT associate professor who specializes in personal robots. Jibo seems like a more consumer... This is Gizmodo, The Verge. Jibo seems like a more consumer-friendly robot than some of the past projects she's pioneered, like the Furby reminiscent Leonardo robot, but more importantly, a developer's kit version of Jibo will give people a chance to expand the robot's functions, since the real test for Jibo might not be getting in homes, but finding something to do once it gets there. What a weird commercial. All right, I'll put the video in the show notes. So I'll add a thing. Jibo video, because it's really, really weird. And finally, thank you, Duchess. Sarah Palin's family allegedly in Alaska house party brawl. Oh, my God, this is the best news story ever. I don't even have to read the article. The whole Sarah Palin family was at a party in Alaska. And someone at the party was talking smack about a member of the Palin family who wasn't there. And so her daughter, Bristol, started stepping up and like, what did you call my sister? And like started punching this dude. Apparently he punched her like five or six times. Yeah, here we go. Here's the quote from Eric Thompson, adding that he was one of the 70 guests at the birthday party in Anchorage. She was punching him, another man, in the face like six times. It was an assault if I've ever seen one. It wasn't a light punch either. She was really hitting him. I'm surprised he just sat there and took it. Uh, 
So, Track Palin allegedly attacked another party guest who had previously dated his younger sister, Willow Palin. And then, here comes, Sarah Palin started yelling, Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? <laughs> Anytime you're yelling, do you know who I am? That's just bad news. You've hit rock bottom. Or so we think. Every time I think Sarah Palin has hit rock bottom, she comes along and does something else. That's even more ridiculous. Okay, now we've got a new feature on the show called... The Jason Gallagher File! Then when I feel so stuffed I can't eat anymore, I just use the restroom. And then I can eat more. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. So Jason Gallagher sends me all sorts of articles all the time. And I always put them in this file and then I forget about them. But not today. I'm going to just quickly tell you about some of these. <laughs> so thank you, Jason Gallagher, first of all, for sending me these. Uh, NPR had a story, uh, The Power of Poop. A whale story. Like one of the comment. Oh, wait, no, this is his comments. So NPR uh, has this article about using the power of feces from whales. Uh, uh, one, I don't even know what. I've I, I, I read these a long time ago. A marine biologist, Victor Smektacek, was thinking about giant whales, blues, humpbacks, and especially the baleens. Baleen whales eat lots of krill, little crustacean critters that look like itty bitty lobsters. Krill, in turn, eat even smaller, microscopic. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, the problem is with the middle group, the krill, and basically uh, the whale poop hypothesis, <laughs> extra nutritious manuring mechanism. Uh, whales poop. They poop mightily. And he, this guy proposed that because baleen whales prowl the seas consuming immense quantities of krill, they might, during digestion, concentrate their food into iron-rich deposits, which, when time comes, they eject back into the ocean. So we could use this poop, and it has iron in it, and it could help us. So hooray for whale poop. Yes, thank you, Jason Gallagher. What a shock that he's got stuff about um, poop. Because that's his whole thing. U.S. Navy tests robotic firefighters. The robots are going to be fighting our fires. That's a good thing for robots to be doing. I don't think we should need humans to go running into burning houses. Send robots in there. Um, yeah, robots, uh, drones, and submarines. They joined the search for MH370. This is from a long time ago. April of this year. <laughs> Uh, so robots were being used, drones, submarines were going and looking for stuff. Uh, yeah, that's a good, again, a good thing to use for it. Google has bought some drones. There's this new series on PBS, uh, the United State of Secrets and Frontline does a great job. So thank you, Jason, for reminding us about that. If you don't subscribe to the Frontline podcast, you're missing out on the best documentary audio work and they do video documentaries too. And it's just really good. Um, the UN had a thing. Uh, the UN is worried about killer robots. And, uh, yeah, so that's a good thing. CNN has a good uh, article about that. Inside the shadowy world of high-speed tennis betting. <laughs> this is crazy. Uh, I will tell you about this. This is from 538.com, which, is that Nate Silver's thing? I don't know. Anyway, in January, Daniel Dobson was two months into a new job that allowed him the opportunity to travel overseas and watch live sports. It had a downside, though. It got him arrested in an incident that drew media coverage around the world. His job was to sit courtside at the Australian Open in Melbourne and use his cell phone to transmit the outcome of each point of the match he was watching. The faster he worked, the greater the edge his employers at Sporting Data Limited would have in the betting market. Uh, so eventually they, you know, wanted to find ways to speed it up and it's a very interesting article. You should totally check it out. I will link that in the show notes. Like I will all of these articles. Girls claim Slenderman is real accused of stabbing friend 19 times. We covered this on the veteran gamers. Really sad. These, these girls, uh, how old were they? They were just like 12 or something and they, 
they stab their friend and uh, it's so disgusting um nice elderly care uh oh emotional robot launches in japan yeah exactly uh nothing worse than predatory salesmen or scammers assaulting the elderly but get an emotional robot to take care of grandma and watch her personal information go public and the end of the world unfold indeed thank you jason gallagher um this drone shoots crowds with pepper spray paintballs yes Awesome. This is cool. The Verge. I, the Verge is like the news source of the episode. I don't even know what's going on. We're on the verge of something cool. Ha! On the verge of something cool. That's going to be the name of the episode. Um, so, yeah, this robot is shooting pepper spray paintballs at protesters. Now, that's horrible because everyone knows when you go to play paintball, the first thing they tell you is what? Put on your goggles. If a paintball hits you in the eye, it will blind you for life. So what are these drones going to be doing shooting paintballs at protesters and blinding them with pepper spray in the eyes? Boo! The Skunk Riot Control Copter, built by South African company Desert Wolf, has a suite of cameras and four paintball guns strapped to its chassis to help its operators monitor and control unruly crowds. The guns can fire ammunition from four different hoppers, meaning the drone operators can shoot protesters with dye markers, solid plastic pellets, or small capsules of pepper spray. Ugh, that's disgusting. Don't use that, anyone. Conserve the Sound is a really cool website where you can check out sounds. And then his final thing he sent me was, uh, oh, yeah, he, he likes NPR. And he was responding to the um, article about the rug. And you know what? I'm sorry. No, I don't want to hear it. If NPR is going to do articles about education and news stories about education, they need to give actual reporting, not, ah, the kids are on the rug and it's a shag rug and rug and blah. No, I hate it. So that's the Jason Gallagher file. All right, real quick, we need to talk about hip hop. Uh, one, two, one, two, uh. Democracy Now! was playing some of her speech to the UN. They had a music break and they played this awesome song called I Am Malala. And I'm going to play you a little excerpt right now. Look, I want to make a nation proud. One day we'll say things loud and be free. With the power of speech, we can change our world and how it's perceived. We've got doubts and beliefs, but no one thing's truly out of our reach. Don't tell me the sky's the limit, because nothing could pull me down when I dream. I'm working on turning into a reality. Showing a vision with every person who I chose to be blind I wanna focus their minds And show that despite we're broken inside Because they're powerful together without a cloak of disguise I hope in the future that I can look back on a new generation It's peaceful, that's grateful, they're equal Cause those performing a change for the people With pains and an easel We picture perfect, you want attention To making the most of our time Creating more than useless inventions I'm only young, so I guess it's down for you to decide Would you choose to fight for what you believe in? Would you do what is right if I needed you? Would you stand tall with me right here by my to see, take a look through my eyes. I am It's a beautiful tribute to an awesome lady, and you should totally check out the whole song. There's an awesome second verse, and it's a little cheesy, but so what? Shut up. It's time for the quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting, because the ending is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait just a minute. 
And I'm trying to find a quote, but I, I'm man, I don't, I don't know what to say because I didn't have a quote ready. So uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, okay, here we go. So I'm looking up an article uh, about Emmeline Pankhurst, which I wrote on Wikipedia because she's awesome, and she was this British suffragette. And uh, I wrote about her because I had written an article about Emma Goldman, and then I wrote one about Emmy Nother, uh, and then I realized, oh wait, I want to have three articles about people name, whose names start with E-M-M. And so my friend Willow said, oh, you should write out an article about Emmeline Pankhurst. And so I looked into her and I was like, yes, I should. Uh, or maybe Emmy Nother was the third one. No, no, Emmy Nother was the second one because I went looking for some sort of a mathematician from the Arab world because that's where we get our numbers from. But I couldn't find a good book-length biography about anybody, so I ended up looking into women mathematicians. And so Emmy Nother was the one I found there, and I wrote the article about her. And anyway, Emmeline Pankhurst was the leader of the um, Women's Social Political Union, and they were the main suffragette organization that demanded votes for women, and uh, they published a newsletter called Votes for Women. So she said, the condition of our sex is so deplorable, it is our duty to break the law in order to call attention to the reasons why we do so. And later on, she said, on the 21st of October, 1908, she told the court, we are here not because we are lawbreakers, we are here in our efforts to become lawmakers. And she was an agitator, and a lot of people said that she was a bad person, but she wasn't because she was a, a fire starter. Uh, but she was ag agitating to make things better. And that reminds us that, you know, lots of people who are trying to make the world a better place are often called horrible names until we realize, oh, wait, they were on the right side of history. And then we, you know... Uh, make them into, you know, little teddy bears, and we forget the complexity. And Tavis Smiley just wrote a book about Martin Luther King of the last year of his life, and he points out the complexity that we forget about Martin Luther King and all sorts of other things. So anyway, that's it, people. That's the end of the show. I'm exhausted. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is at fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff that I've made. Shout-outs this week to you for listening. Thank you very much. Shout-outs to Jason Gallagher for sending me all his articles. Shout-outs to Janine. And shout-outs to uh, any former students who are listening. You should get in touch and let me know that you took a listen. And shout-outs to The Duchess, of course. And shout-outs to Stu Leck for helping me to promote the show and especially Stulek for being the impetus he was like hey where's a new show I miss you uh, doing the show so I'm doing this show this is for Stulek uh, peace big love baby I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing so I forgot if there are dumb I apologize if there are dumb things that I forgot to cut out like that part right there where I just stumbled over the word apologize and said forgot instead I'm a very busy man deal with it listen I don't have time to play with the phone here I got a lot of stuff I gotta get done thank you for listening everybody please get in touch with feedback or questions you can email me esp at fbesp org or you can tweet me at Duke Scaff I'm gonna stop talking now Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Oh, God, I'm starving. Hey, Tito, you want lunch? Let's get some lunch, buddy.